Welcome again to season four of What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm your host, Malak Fuad. My guests on the show are leaders in their fields from across the Middle East, and our conversations revolve around their lives' pivot points. There's something for everyone here. This season, we have entrepreneurs, doctors, designers, journalists, innovators, and much more. Dr. Nadine Hashash Haram joins me in the hot seat today to discuss her amazing, life-changing work. Nadine is a reconstructive surgeon, and her work with the National Health Service in the UK has allowed her to help patients rebuild their lives after they've suffered trauma from either disease or accidents. Alongside this, she is the founder of Proximy, a startup revolutionizing how surgery is conducted with a technology platform that enables operating rooms across remote locations to virtually interact and conduct surgeries in real time. For Nadine, these two roles complement each other and allow her to flex and explore different sides of her talent and intellect. Nadine's eyes were opened during her formative years living in Lebanon after the civil war in the early 1990s. She saw the horrors that war inflicts on people and communities and discovered firsthand how difficult it is for individuals to rebuild their lives if proper health care is not available. She is also a wife and a mother of three and, like many women, is trying to juggle all these demands on her time, trying to keep all the balls in the air at once. Nadine's story is one of perseverance, dedication and incremental change. As always, we start with our icebreaker questions. When was the last time Nadine did something for the first time? I have a 17-year-old son, and we had a great summer together. Um, and I got exposed to his genre of music, which is a little bit different to mine. He's really into British rap. And um, I spent the summer listening and learning that whole new genre, which I have to say it's a little bit obscene. But it, for me, it was kind of a way to connect with the younger generation, Obviously, I wanted to be cool in front of my 17-year-old son, but more so as, you know, as I'm surrounded by, you know, young millennials and individuals that even come and join my company, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I was, you know, cool and 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 in the know. So it's not your typical, you know, I'm sure people want to answer something that's very curated about, you know, some professional development thing that they've done. But honestly, I think sometimes doing just stuff like that and just connecting with youth is equally powerful. So that's what I did. And um, separately, we also bonded, which is really great. So yeah. I, I also have a 17-year-old son and and I find it a very difficult age, actually, because their, you know, their peers take over in terms of the, the importance of, you know, they're the ones that sort of matter the most and finding whatever you can to connect with them, I think is, is priceless. And even if it's out of your comfort zone, listening to rap yeah. music, I, I think that was a smart move. <laughs> Not very easy to do, but um, what kind of music do you normally like? I mean, I'm quite eclectic. I'll listen to all kinds of things from, you know, house, deep house to, to oldies, to pop, to rock. I mean, I, I like everything, but there's, this was that, that kind of, and I, I like rap in general, but this type of rap was like one step too far. So yeah, you know, I, I kind of found my my zone. And when you're operating, do you listen to music? Because I know a lot of surgeons do that. Always. What do you listen to? So I have different playlists. Um, they're mixed. They're mixed. It could be like the summer, like a summer playlist. So all the latest songs of the summer. Um, it could be a whole mix. I, I have a playlist that has about three, four hundred songs on it that just play so I don't get bored. So I'm not hearing the same yeah. music. I mean, I grew up with music at home. My dad... My mom was a pianist. My dad loved rock and music. So we listened to a lot of music growing up, all kinds, mm -hmm. like Arabic, English, uh, French. We listened to a lot of French music as well. So it's, it's very, very mixed. So um, I enjoy it. Our next question um, is more about social media. 
So um, are you more team Instagram or are you more team Twitter? I, ironically, I'm more a team LinkedIn, if that's even on the on the list of questions. It, it can be, absolutely, why not? I'll look at Instagram to sort of stay connected to family and friends and just kind of keep up to date on what they're doing. But personally, I don't I don't post on it. I'm, I'm really very active on LinkedIn. I find it an incredible um, platform that connects industry, clinic you know, surgeons, um, and, and kind of brings that intersection. You tend to sort of see in healthcare, like a lot of surgeons are active on Twitter. A lot of device and industry are active on LinkedIn. But now you're seeing that kind of transaction. So I do a lot on, on that. Uh, but equally, there are a few channels on Twitter that, you know, and like hashtags that I follow quite closely. So one of the most um, recent ones that I'm really interested in is the hashtag, no training today, no surgeons tomorrow. It's quite a mouthful, but it really talks about how we need to really invest in this generation of training surgeons to make sure that when we're older and we need those surgeons, um, they'll be around to look after us. So mm -hmm. it's it's talking a lot about workforce um, management and planning, supporting training, changing the way we train, care delivery and codification and surgery. So it's something I'm, I'm quite interested in as well. And do you tend to follow uh, uh, sort of corporations or, or particular um, accounts on LinkedIn? Or is it through your own connect connections that you're you end up finding articles that you like yeah no i definitely um follow different corporations and and links so a lot of the big industry players medtech strategist joe mullings group um uh, medtech talks um you know sifted you know you look at what they're posting the big industry like your johnson and johnson your medtronics your j you know mm -hmm. your um smith and nephews your strike and all those big companies we tend to follow uh, but equally, I like to follow um, inspiring CEOs and other people. Like I'm a big fan of um, the CEO of Vimeo. I think she's fantastic. Um, I love what she posts. It's very thoughtful. It's very honest. It's very humble. So I tend to follow sort of those. And then naturally, you know, as you think about people and culture and how your company is growing, I tend to follow some some sections around that that are focusing on that. Even, you know, HBS and HBR. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I like to sort of read those as well. Interesting. Um, and I subscribe to magazines as well. So I, I get HBR every month and I'll go through that and then I'll share it with the team if there's any relevant articles. I picked up obviously that you were born and raised until the age of 10 in the US in California. And that at that age, you moved to Lebanon, which is where your parents are originally from. Um, tell me about that move and how um the changes that you experienced obviously it's a very different lifestyle um how did you assimilate in beirut um how did you um you know as a 10 year old how was that change for you and i know that that happened right after the the civil war ended so you were coming in after that was finished uh, but obviously finding your way in a in a post war environment is quite quite challenging. And and I'm curious to hear from the eyes of a 10-year-old what that was like. I mean, it was definitely a culture shock. Um, in hindsight now, I think it was the best thing my family ever did. And I can't thank them enough for doing it. So I'll sort of say that up front because it really helped me develop into the person I am today. And and that kind of grit, that resilience, um, that that understanding that not everything is straightforward, uh, I think is really important. So yeah, I mean, we moved 
in like early 1991 to sort of Lebanon, 1991. And whilst we were sort of coming out of civil war, as they say, it wasn't still stable. I mean, all throughout the 90s, there were still skirmishes and and challenges like 96 with Grapes of Wrath and and thereafter. So, you know, whilst you moved into this world where it said it's after the war, you were still kind of living in the war. But, you know, with all the challenges came all the pluses as well. So yes, you leave sunny San Diego, which is stunning. And you move into, you know, Beirut just emerging from a pretty rough civil war and everywhere. I mean, just the basics, the things that you take for granted, electricity, water, uh, normal streets, you know, garbage, you know, rubbish men who are able to like just standard things that you just think are, you know, just exist everywhere, don't exist. Um, but what you get in, in exchange for that is just the incredible um, surrounding yourself by incredible family and community that, you know, I, didn't, I had a bit of growing up in California, but but not like that. You know, I got to live with my grandmother, with my cousins, second cousins, third cousins. I mean, you know how it is there. The families are like, you know, 50, 60 in a family. It, it's like it takes a village. It's that mentality. Yeah, which I love. Yeah, it was literally a village. And, you know, my, my mom's from the south of Lebanon. We would go down every Friday after school and stay there all weekend till Sunday night. And honestly, I, I don't even remember being at home. We would just be out in the fields playing with our, I mean, it was just brilliant. And, but it shows you the fragility of life, I think, and also how there's inequity in life. And so growing up in that environment, you know, it taught me a lot about being grateful and thankful for what we have, um, for empathy and sympathy to others that don't have. And how it doesn't matter how young, small, or big you are, you, anyone can make you know a small change or play a role in changing someone's life. No matter how small you might think it is, it could be something huge for them. And so we we immersed ourselves growing up there. My grandma ran a number of charities. She was very philanthropic, and so we just immersed ourselves in all kinds of activities. You know, taking food produces to people's homes spending time with disabled children, um, the elderly in, in places like Dar al-Ajaza. I mean, we just did anything that we could to sort of make a difference. And I remember that that was largely an influence from her uh, and from my mother who, you know, living, I mean, probably just to have it, living in Lebanon w was not easy for business people. So my father had to live in Saudi while we lived in in Lebanon, Saudi Arabia. So he would come and go. So we were largely raised by my mother and my grandmother. It was a very matriarchal house. I'm one of four sisters. It was like all women in a home. And so it was very much about empowering us to follow our dreams, be purposeful in everything that we do, be empathetic, um, not take anything for granted and give back to the community. And so anything that we did had that kind of theme at home. And I remember my, my grandma's living room always had people coming, asking for help. I mean, it was just constantly full. There was like people in and out all the time. And that was really um, helpful for me to grow up. And I and she was, I mean, we were best friends. She was, I was very close to her. Sadly, she died very young at 63 of a heart attack in her sleep. But, you know, she really kind of made me the person I am. And I remember we would have these conversations, you know, about life and, you know, philosophical conversations. And she would always say to me, forget all the, the shiny and the money and all that stuff. Just make sure that whatever you do um, builds legacy, makes impact, because nothing will satisfy you more than that. Trust me, I know, you know, she was giving me like her life lessons. And I held I held true to that, I hope. I mean, I I tried in everything I do to do that. So I chose to be a surgeon because of that, because of what I'd seen in Lebanon and because the desire to help improve people's quality of life. And since then, I would say every pivot or decision 
I have taken has always held true to that core, but shaped and dressed differently. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious to know, how did your, I mean, obviously your grandmother, you've just said, has, has played a very large role in in formulating your your ideas about how you wanted to live your life. Um, and I, I read somewhere that you were introduced to a doctor at a young age uh, in Lebanon who also showed you a path that was that you might not have considered before. Tell me a little bit about him and and did you intern with him or were you just exposed to his work? How did that connection happen? And then also I'm I'm curious to know obviously living in Lebanon um at that time you 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 were confronted with a daily uh daily visuals of people in need and people needing care and so at what sort of point were you a young teenager? Were you on your way to college? When did this idea of you know medicine and and particularly reconstructive surgery come into play for you and become a real option in as a career? So in 1996, there was, you know, they called it the Grapes of Wrath War, and specifically there was the Kana massacre. My mother's from the village of Kana, which is a really really small village um, in the south of Lebanon, very famous where. Uh, Jesus turned water to wine. So it's it's a, it's a very historical part of the world uh, and a very tragic part in terms of what happened in that massacre. Mostly, you know, elderly men and women and children sort of um, were victims of that uh, event. And of course, you know, I had front row seats to that. And naturally, it was very traumatic uh, to see that happen. And you were very young. You were 15 or 16 at that point, right? Yeah, I was uh, I was 14, turning 15. Yeah. So I was kind of in my early teens. You tend to build a bit of a numbness when you grow up in those environments, which is really sad to say, but it is the truth where, you know, almost become numb to death because it's just happening all the time. But when it becomes at that scale, it's a real shocker. And I think more than the death, the thing that really got to me was the morbidity. So all these individuals who survived it that were left, you know, without limbs, with awful burns, contractures, with, you know, these could have been breadwinners uh, of their family, people who, you know, were working, who were no longer able to really integrate back into society. And so that, you know, I, I still remember, like, I, I have distinct memories of that moment, hearing, seeing it, seeing the picture, like, it's it's all very vivid still in my mind. Um, and, and I think will stay with me my whole life. Like, it was incredibly... Uh, you know, heavy. And so in that time, about a year later, a surgeon called Dr. Kamal Abu Dahir, who was in a New York surgeon at Columbia, um, who's a head of plastics, um, would come and spend his summers in Lebanon. He's from the town, from the city of Sidon, from Saida. And so he, we were, you know, he's a family friend. We were at, at a, you know, at a coffee or a dinner. And he said that he was heading down to one of the camps to do some reconstructive surgery because there were young children who had suffered burns, who were unable to walk and unable to do you know, basic things because of these burn contractures where the burn scars and it tightens and it it's, you know, you're unable to then move your wrist or move your ankle and basic things. So I don't know, I was, I was a bit bold then, probably still equally bold. And I just said, can I come with you? And maybe I caught him off guard. I don't know. He was in a setting with lots of friends and family. He was embarrassed to say no to you. <laughs> yeah, probably. But he was very, he was so lovely. And I, and he said, it's 5.30 in the morning. I said, I'll be there at 5.30. I remember the driver taking me at 5 a.m. And I was just waiting under his house to like get picked up to go. I was so excited. And we spent the day with him watching his craft. I mean, just the most gifted, one of the most gifted surgeons I've ever worked with. 
the way he reconstructed her leg and you know got into dressing and then seeing the look of gratitude from her family and just the whole feeling the emotions that day were incredibly uplifting and i remember still distinctly as well arriving that day it was like i don't know 4 p.m i walked into my mom's living room in our, in our home and i'm like that's what i want to do i'm going to be a reconstructive plastic surgeon that's it i'm done i know what i'm doing and i remember her saying hold on hold on like are you sure you want to do medicine like it's a big commitment i said yep and not just medicine i'm going to be a reconstructive plastic surgeon that was it. I was hooked. I was 15, 16, and I knew what I wanted to do. Till this day, he's a very good friend and an incredible mentor to me. But I do agree, there is something about knowing what you want. You know, when I look at my kids now, they don't all know what they want to do immediately. And so, you know, I, I probably had it easy that way. It's easy when you know what you want to do. Well, I mean, I don't think it's a given. I think it's easy if you know what you want to do, and then if you're able to achieve it. But if you know what you want to do and you can't get there, that must be incredibly frustrating. But that's not the case with you. Yeah. Um, but you're. But this doctor sounds like your good luck charm, or your, you know, your um, fairy godfather. You know, the 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 one who sort of followed you through your career. Is he involved in proximity with you? Not in proximity, but I, I constantly, even till this day, whenever I'm in Lebanon, I'll go scrubbing with him. Um, I'll learn new technique. Like we're very close yeah. and I always keep him up to date about what's going on. When we come back, we'll get into Nadine's next pivot of becoming an entrepreneur with the establishment of Proximy. That's right after this break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, you can find out more about the screenwriting process with acclaimed filmmaker Mo Hevzi, or about the luxury design industry with Monez and Ayad Raouf, the sisters behind Ukhtin. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fuad and you're listening to What I Did Next. This is my conversation with Dr. Nadine Hashash Haram. Explain to me how the idea, the original idea for Proximy came about and eventually how, how it developed to what it is today. It dawned on me around the time that the Lancet Commission published an article. And it was a big article that said that 5 billion people around the world lack access to safe surgery. And, you know, for me, it was a kind of like a kick in the gut. You know, it was just like all this work we're trying to do and all this impact. And 
We're not even like, it's so incremental. It's just a drop in the ocean. It's not enough. Yes. And you know, whether that's because of my upbringing or the trauma of seeing everything we talked about in Lebanon, there was always this kind of like, I need to do more. I need to do more. I need to help more. And so I remember I was, um, I was pregnant with my third child and I was sitting in my operating room on one of those metal footstools and I was waiting for them to wheel in the next patient. I was looking around the room and I was thinking, gosh, I mean, this, you know, this world of, of surgery is so analog, you know, everything that we do is so moment in time. It's so incremental. We don't capture the knowledge. We don't share it um, unless you're in the room. That's it. It's done. Like case done. And all you end up with at the end is a written piece of paper that says this is the operation that was done. And here's a few scribbles and a drawing, um, which has held us in good stead for a long time in surgery. But this concept of like see one, do one, teach one, you know, to me just felt in a world where we're doing everything on our phones and everything is digitally connected and everything is data driven and transparent. Like, why wouldn't we turn the operating room into a digitally connected environment or a place where we could I don't have to travel 14 hours to Vietnam. Like, couldn't I just dial in to the case and work with them? And so as I started to think through it, I realized that everything that was kind of off the shelf was more teleconferencing. It wasn't really designed for surgery. It was more about video audio as we're doing now. But what I really wanted to do was to really find a way to immerse yourself in that environment. So could I actually draw, show you, bring in other images and scans, like act you know, as if I'm in the room with you without having to be in the room with you. And that could be a really great first step into digitizing the operating room. And it it was really just an idea. I mean, I, I was an academic. I used to publish a lot of papers. I was doing research. So I thought, well, this is a good research project. Why don't I just try that? So, you know, self-funded a few engineers to build a prototype because the criteria for me, which I couldn't control with anything off the shelf was this had to work on any device. This had to work with very low bandwidth because anywhere in the world, even in the UK and certain hospitals, the internet's not great. Um, and it didn't, it had to have really no noticeable lag because any lag or choppiness defeats the whole purpose. It's, it doesn't feel genuine or authentic. And the foundation of the entire enterprise is that it's live surgeries. You're, you're able to access live surgeries, right? Correct. I know that you also have an extensive, an extensive library of, of, you know, cases that have been done, surgeries that have been done that anyone can access and, and can, it's almost like a, a library of, of operations that you can learn from. But the, but the basis of the company is live operations and being taught as you're going. You're right. That was the first entry point. So I guess you could call it the wedge. You know, I thought, how am I going to walk in? And, and I, being a practicing surgeon, I still practice. I'm still a surgeon. I think that's really, really important because there's an intimate knowledge of the psyche and the 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 nuances of the that environment that you have to really understand if you're going to build for that 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 customer that user and so i knew that if i just walked in and said hey let's just record everything that you do and stream it like that just would not have landed it wouldn't have landed the right way um, so what i really wanted to start with is why don't we get you comfortable with live collaboration, teleproctoring, telementoring. This is great for your colleagues, great for your students, great for your residents. And it's a great way to connect with everyone and show them you know, how, how we're doing with our operations. Over time, we then started to encourage the, well, why don't you record your videos? Because now you have a library. Oh, and why don't we run some analytics on the videos? Because you could get more information about what. So we had to sort of phase it through to build the trust, build the comfort level, 
and build the access into hospitals. And right or wrong, I think for us, that has really helped us capture such a big footprint so quickly. We ha there's, a, there's one message, if, I, if any, that I can get across is that this is not a problem in just some parts of the world. This is a problem everywhere. And so what we've tended to, and, and I've, you know, what we tend to imagine or think is that, oh, this is really a problem for the global south or for LATAM or for parts of the world that don't have access. I can tell you as a surgeon working in the NHS, we have the same problems here. Variability in care, variability in access. Why do some patients get one type of care and others a different? Why is surgery so unstandardized and uncodified? And so from that perspective, if you recognize the problem ever, then the software that you build or the solution that you build has to work in every environment. And so what I wanted to do was to take see one, do one, teach one, which is very analog, very incremental, very independent siloed into something called prepare, perform, perfect, a digital continuum that doesn't really matter whether you're a first year med student or you're a senior surgeon, you're reminding yourself and preparing for a case. You can either watch a video or dial into a live case. The perform bit is you're getting, you're doing your case. You might want to dial someone in to, to work with you or give a second opinion or just watch and learn from you. And then the perfect bit is I go back and look at my video and I get comparisons and analytics and information about how I've done. Nadine, I'd like you to give me um, a sort of a, um, an, a concrete example uh, of a case. So for example, I'm a doctor in Costa Rica in a very remote part of the wilderness, the jungle. And I'm dialing in or coming onto your platform to help with an operation because I don't have the know-how or I don't have enough people with me to help me. Give me an example of, of how that would work. This is probably the story that really made me take that leap of faith to start Proximy. As I said earlier, I was just looking at it as a research project. Um, I had Proximy put in Peru, working with cleft surgeons in other parts of the world. And I was writing, you know, abstracts and, you know, publishing articles. And then in 2016, a friend of mine who's a medical journalist was in Gaza. And he reached out to me and he said, look, there's this young man with an awful blast injury to his hand that is really kind of, it's his dominant hand and his hand is non-functioning now. And he's the only breadwinner for his family. His father died and, and he's looking after his mother and sisters and he can't work without his hand. Could we help? You mentioned this technology over coffee, like how, how can we connect the dots? So given Proximy is cloud-based software, you can access it from any device. So we didn't have to send any devices in. They just dialed in on their tablet and I invited a, a trained hand surgeon to dial in with them and they were able to work together with the local surgeons and the remote surgeon to reconstruct his hand. It was a great, great success. It was a beautiful operation. And the most beautiful part of that story is that he went on to train to be a nurse. It's almost like he was given another chance, another opportunity, and he wanted to give back and help others. And that has been the story of Proximy consistently. Every day, we have cases happening in the US and in Europe, in Australia, New Zealand, as well as countries like India, in Kenya, um, in Costa Rica, and I mean, all over the world. And they all are using it ultimately to bring best care to their patients. And we partner with different organizations to help those different needs. So in, in, in the Global South, we partner with Japaigo, which is Johns Hopkins Global Health Arm, and Ariande, which is Harvard's um, Global Health Arm. And we're supporting them in the delivery of safe, safe obstetric care, things that you know we take for granted, but a lot of women are dying because of that lack of access. 
and it's very very humbling and very you know fulfilling there is no doubt that proximy has already created a lot of impact and they're only just getting started when we come back we talk work-life balance with nadine and see how she manages her surgical schedule with her ceo duties as well as her domestic life as a wife and mother we'll be right back Welcome back. You're listening to what I did next. Today, the chat is with Dr. Nadine Hashash Haram. Recently, Nadine uh, Proximy received a, a large um, influx of funding. Um, what does that mean in terms of going forward for the company? How, what are you going to be rolling out, or what are you? What does that allow you to do in the next in the next uh, chapter? Yeah, I mean, the vision uh, that I have is that Proximy really becomes the operating system of the operating room that connects sort of pre-op, intra-op, and post-op. And we're only just scratching the surface of the capabilities of the technology. We've built an incredibly sophisticated technology stack to date, and we're capturing lots of footprint and operating rooms, but we have a lot more to do. And so a lot of, you know, a big chunk of the investment will be dedicated to R&D, and we're growing a very uh, robust um, product and technology team that I'm very proud of. They're able to pull out new new features at a much faster pace. And that is to continue to meet the needs of our clinical teams, our nurses, our scrub techs, our hospitals, and help bring knowledge back to them and information as we continue to build on this data continuum. The data will become incredibly powerful, as will the ability to connect people and devices. Any room you walk into it, there's this conception that every operating room looks the same, but actually it is the most heterogeneous of environments. And yet probably the most expensive of environments for hospitals. When you think about where hospitals spend a lot of their money, it's on the fit outs of operating rooms and they can vary. You know, you can have six rooms that look like one and eight rooms that look like another one. Some are robotic, some are catheter labs. And so having one system that can work and connect all the devices and systems and people together is powerful. And so we're continuing to work on that integration piece, uh, that data acquisition and pushback. Um, and managing the content, you know, all the surgical videos that we're sort of capturing, how can we start to make more sense of it? The second part is to continue to help our team uh, respond to the demand that we have. We've got a lot of people interested in using our technology all around the world, and we want to make sure that we have enough people to sort of support and deliver on that. So it's it, we're very fortunate. It gives us a long runway to just focus on the business and grow the business and hire incredible talent. So I'm very, very humbled. And I think we timed it well as well with the markets. I wanted to move uh, move tax a little bit, and I wanted to get a sense of how you balance things out. So you obviously have your, you wear your medical hat, you wear your startup hat, but you're also a wife and a mother of three kids. So just give me a sense, firstly, how does your week look like? I mean, how do you divide all this up? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, uh, you know, I think saying that I've got it all balanced and down packed would be sort of an embellishment. I think there's good weeks and and less good weeks. I'm very lucky to be surrounded by, you know, an incredible husband and children, but also an extended family. I have three very supportive sisters who drop things, you know, at a drop of a hat and come and help if needed. And my parents who are very helpful as well. So that has always been my saving grace, my kind of anchor that helps me do all that I want to do. Are your, are, is all your family living in London with you? Your sisters and your parents? No, just my husband and children. They live between Beirut and Dubai. 
but uh, they've never let me down. Anytime I need an urgent, you know, I'm heading on a long trip. Can someone come over? They'll be there. They've been really, really amazing uh, cheerleaders. And my husband and kids have been incredibly, you know, supportive. The kids in a way have grown to be quite independent and self-sufficient, which is not a bad thing. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, when we sit down and have conversations, it's always hard. You know, you want to attend everything at school. You want to be there for every coffee morning and every, you know, class visit. But, you know, we have a good understanding between us of, you know, what things I can attend and what I can't. And I hope on the flip side of that, I'm showing them what it's like to craft your own journey, your own destiny, your own path, and that it's okay to not follow the norm and, you know, kind of break the status quo. So I hope that's inspiring them in a different way. But my weeks are pretty dense. I mean, Monday to Friday is jam-packed and I cover multiple time zones. So, you know, I can start as early as five, six in the morning um, and then keep going till midnight um, on certain days. And it's a mix of clinical days, proximity days, and sort of, you know, standard just management admin days and, and trying to do everything in between. But I'm quite strict about the weekend and really, um, you know, I don't touch my laptop really on the weekend. It's kind of my energy rebuilding. So it's really about family, kids, friends, socializing, all the things that I need to kind of get me fresh and ready for Monday. So I don't do anything till about Sunday evening. And then Sunday evening, as most people, you go through your emails, you go through everything you need to do, you schedule for the week and I make plans. And so far it's working. I kind of know myself when it, things are getting too much, I know how to claw back and, and balance my time. But I have to give my mom credit for time management. She, my mom was a teacher and from a very early age, she would sit us down and talk us through sort of time management and managing your schedules and, and all those things during exam time. So I, I give her the credit for that. Do you envision that the next five years will be more of the same? Do you imagine that, you know, 15, 20 years down the line, you will have hung up your scrubs and that you will be managing Proximy full time? Maybe, you know, talking about this on a, on, a, on a lecture circuit. I know you're already doing a lot of that, but do you envisage that that will become more of your your day-to-day -day life? I mean, I love the clinical and, you know, I, I, I would want to retain some of the, there's something really special about that one-on-one -on -one time you have with a patient in the room and you're just talking through what they go through. I think over time though, what I would love to continue to develop myself is uh, mentoring and helping other companies as well. So picking up board seats or mentorship advisory roles, um, because it's, it's been a very interesting path for me and we still have a lot to prove. I mean, we, we have a, lo a long way to go, but I think for my own personal development, that's kind of the next stage I'd love to get involved in. You know, how can I sit on boards and understand that dynamic from the other side? And how can I continue to mentor? I do mentor quite a few um, individuals now, but trying to do that in a more formal setting, I think would be a really great next step for me. Um, just in closing, I know that you received an award from the Queen mm. for your services to, yes. to medicine, right? Tell me about that. Yeah, that was a, a very... Incredible. I mean, I, I remember I, I arrived home from an on-call at one in the morning. I walked into the front door of the building and to the po to the mailbox, and I see this envelope that just looked a bit, you know, fancier than your typical mail. Um, it had, you know, Her Majesty, and and so I was, I was obviously tearing it up. And what's going on? What is this? And you know, in there was was a kind of a letter stating that I'd received um, the British Empire Medal for services to healthcare and innovation. And it was just an incredible moment because 
look, it, it's, it wasn't easy. I mean, five years ago, more now, eight years ago to be a clinical innovator wasn't the norm. You know, you either were a, a clinician or you were an inventor. Trying to be the, the both was not very common. Um, and also working in the NHS, it was kind of slightly frowned upon as well because you're, you're working in a kind of very socialist healthcare system, should just be focused on the day-to-day kind of civil servant type sort of work. And so that for me was just a, a huge kind of point of credibility. And it was something that made me proud, but I think what what made it really special was it was something my family was very proud of. And, you know, to be able to share that with them, um, the day you couldn't say anything till the honors came out in the paper, but, you know, I obviously had a lot of joy from it, but, but seeing the joy on my family's face, my mother, my father, my husband, my kids, uh, made it all that much more special. And I remember the day, you know, we, we had, you know, you're, you're given like three, three, three guests can come, but, you know, I have my husband, two kids and the little one. So the f- three kids and I wanted, you know, I was trying desperately to kind of squeeze him in. Thankfully he was really small then. So he could just sit on someone's lap. And of course he was adamant to bring his stuffed animal as well, but it was like a family day out. You know, we all got <laughs> dressed up for it and went and, you know, got to take the pictures, got to wear the fancy hat and, you know, the kids got to skip school for it. It was just a really, really special day. And on the back of it, uh, this year, we got invited to uh, Her Majesty's Garden Party, which happens in Buckingham Palace. It's it's really special. Um, and, you know, I've got, I've actually, that medal is special to me, but I think so much more so to my parents and my husband and kids. I guess, it, it you know, it it's a culmination of all the hard work and all the juggling and everyone's input and helping out. And so it's... Um, everyone. It's and I love everyone. that, you know, yeah. I'm a, you know, not to pick up on like, diversity but you know i'm a sort of lebanese uh first kind of you know first generation in the uk you know trying to build a family trying to make things work trying to build a business so it it just takes a lot of boxes i I felt proud representing my country i felt proud representing all the people that have tried to innovate and and make a difference you know and, and for me any way i can give back or inspire others in our region to do the same is is for me the most satisfying bit of it all that's why i have an office in beirut that's why we we employ individuals from there, from all socioeconomic backgrounds, um, because I truly believe that it's our responsibility as expats to sort of try and help and, and sort of make that difference for people. So it's, it's a tiny drop in an ocean of what the country needs. But, you know, those, those 40, 50 lives and family lives, I think we're making a difference for. Well, Nadine, it was such a joy and such a pleasure to hear your story. You. And it's incredible. So thank you. Honestly, thank you so much for thinking of me. I know. I've seen the caliber of the people you interview on this show. It's pretty impressive. So I feel very honored to be part of that that patch. And I look forward to hearing the rest of the episodes as well and hearing their stories. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed hearing about Nadine's journey, there's a bit more in our bonus episode for subscribers out next week. In that episode, Nadine and I delve more into how Proximy operates. You can sign up now in Apple Podcasts and get a 14-day free trial. You'll get bonus material and early access to episodes throughout the season. Now that's a great deal. What are you waiting for? This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fuad, and is co-produced by Shirag Desai. You can follow us on social media for video snippets from our interviews and other updates. Just search for What I Did Next on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We've also recently joined TikTok, so why not show us some love there too? Lastly, we'd be grateful if you could take the time to leave a review of the show in your favorite podcast player. See you soon.